Well, welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is November 27, 2022, and I'm your host, James Myers. It's an honor to be joined by members of the Toronto, Calgary, and Chicago philosophy meetup groups. Whether you've been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. To contribute your thoughts, please use the raise hands feature in Zoom. To keep the discussion flowing and ensure everyone has a chance to speak, I'll call on you in the order that hands are raised, using first name only. I've suggested three themes and excerpts from the reading for today's discussion on the Cratylus, which are posted in the shared drive linked to the event notice on meetup.com. We can focus on any of these or other themes, and for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. As we exchange thoughts on today's reading, I'll briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread. After we finish recording in two hours, I welcome anyone who wishes to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. Today we'll conclude our examination of Plato's Cratylus from 421c to the end of the dialogue on the origin of the names that we apply to things and their evolving meaning in language. A focus of our series on the Cratylus has been the definition of the word thing to which a name applies. In our first episode, we began by looking at varying definitions of thing and found among them perhaps the most general and therefore applicable is object of thought. There's a great deal in today's reading relating to objects of thought, which to my thinking, but not necessarily yours, distill to three main categories, namely, one, dialectic, which is the means by which we identify the first principles or elements, as Socrates calls them in the Cratylus, of a thing. Two, knowledge, recollection, and memory, being the means by which we establish the limits that define our recollection of one thing as different from another. And three, the logic of what Plato refers to as the true, the good, and the beautiful, which are abstractions of the eternal properties of things that we perceive as imitations in their physical motions of becoming. In all of this, Plato presents an incredibly rich and deep meaning in today's reading far more than I can do justice to in a brief introduction. Instead, I'll try to place all things we name in a universal context with reference to Plato's dialogue on the origin of the universe, the Timaeus. The Timaeus was the work of Plato that we covered in our first episodes of this podcast, and so perhaps it's appropriate now to return to two of its passages in particular at 33b and 37d. Let me read them now, and as you listen, note the use of the word thing five times, and consider how the context relates to the last part of the Cratylus that is our subject today, beginning with Socrates' statement at 425a to b about scientific knowledge of things and the circular geometry of things in motion. Based on the evidence in his dialogues, I think Plato was a master of geometry in a universe we now know to be geometric. So let me just display my screen here and show these two sections of the Timaeus that I want to read. So this is Timaeus 33b, talking about the construction of the universe. This is why he concluded that he should fashion the world as a single whole, composed of all wholes, complete and free of old age and disease, and why he fashioned it that way. And he gave it a shape appropriate to the kind of thing it was, the appropriate shape for that living thing that is to contain within itself all the living things, would be the one which embraces within itself all the shapes there are. Hence he gave it a round shape, the form of a sphere, with its center equidistant from its extremes in all directions. This, of all shapes, is the most complete and the most like itself, 
which he gave to it because he believed that likeness is incalculably more excellent than unlikeness. So that was at Timaeus 33b. And then the first part of Timaeus 37d, now it was the living thing's nature to be eternal, but it isn't possible to bestow eternity fully upon any thing that is begotten. And so he began to think of making a moving image of eternity. At the same time as he brought order to the universe, he would make an eternal image, moving according to number, of eternity remaining in unity. This number, of course, is what we now call time. So I wanted to present that because this underlies all of Plato's concept of the construction of the universe and what we've been talking about in a lot of our episodes about the difference between Plato's concept of the realm of becoming, which is the physical realm in which our bodies occupy, and the eternal realm of being, which is the realm that our minds occupy. It's as if we exist in two different realms. Our bodies exist in this constantly changing realm of becoming, uh, in which everything is just constantly changing. So everything is subject to physical entropy, whereas our minds have this access to a more eternal state, a, a state that is not subject to increase or decrease, not subject to limits, and it's a very powerful state. Uh, so we occupy these kind of two realms. So I wanted to present that because I think this concept of Plato's goes through all of his dialogues, and certainly we see this in the Cratylus. And so I wanted to present that as a background for the statement that I mentioned at the end of our, or near the end of our last episode, from 417a to c, in the context of this diagram that I want to show on the screen. So at 417a to c, he says, what is advantageous is nothing other than the movement, aura, of a soul in accord with the movement of things. I thought we could start off with that in the context of what is said at 425a to b which is part of today's reading. At 425a to b, Socrates says, our job, if indeed we are to examine all these things with scientific knowledge, is to divide where they put together, so as to see whether or not both the primary and derivative names are given in accord with nature. For any other way of connecting names to things, Hermogenes, is inferior and unsystematic. In this diagram that I've presented, I just put a circle and I put the observer in one half of the circle and the observed in the other half. And that corresponds to my understanding of 417a to c. What is advantageous is nothing other than the movement of the soul in accord with the movement of things. It seemed logical to me in reading that, that the soul has to make an account of things. And the only way it can make it a complete account when things are all moving in this state of becoming that we exist in in the present is if the soul moves along with those things that we are observing. So because Plato said in the Timaeus that everything is in the form of a circle, which in three dimensions becomes a sphere, I drew a circle and I cut it in half. I put the diameter of the circle to cut the circle in half and I put the observer on top and the observed in the bottom. And I thought it might be useful to look at the context of what we've been talking about in relation to this circle. So if the observer is moving at the same rate as everything that's observed, so the observed is the physical, the observer is the non-physical, I'll just call this line that's cutting the circle in half the thing, the thing that the observer is observing. Okay, so that's the line. And we need to understand that the thing has two limits. So anything that that we observe, I think is what Plato is telling us in the Cratylus, has two limits. It has a beginning, 
which I've drawn with a dot at one end of the line, and it has an end, which is the dot at the other end of the straight line that divides the circle into two. And so the thing on that line has two limits, but the circle itself has no limits in the sense that a circle is that which has no beginning and no end. And certainly if we look at the nature of a circle, which is two pi, so I put a, a two pi symbols on, on each half of the circle, pi is incommensurable and transcendental. And so pi is equal to the circumference over the diameter of the circle. The diameter, which is that line that cuts the circle, is limited. And the circumference is unlimited. And so we have this property where we can never express this as a fraction in terms of the extent of the circumference as a ratio of the extent of the diameter. So if you put the thing on the straight line, which is the diameter, the boundary of that is limitless. And so I thought it might be useful to have this as a bit of a mental image of, I think, what Plato is saying. The other thing about the circle is that there is no perfect circle in our physical state of existence. So the circle is an abstraction. The only perfect circle is exists in the abstract only, not in our state of uh, physical becoming. So it's perfect only in abstraction. And otherwise, in our state of becoming, it's imperfect. So how do we get a concept of, or knowledge of anything? Well, maybe what we do is we join these two ends of the thing, which is the diameter, and we join it to a point on the circle. And then we have something that's contained within a triangle, so this triangle inside the circle. And maybe everything that's contained in this triangle is an imitation, which is what we'll talk about today, this idea that everything we see, everything is an imitation of the actual eternal nature of the thing. And so maybe we kind of fix this imitation in our minds by doing this kind of exercise. And maybe if we bring this down like this, we can find a point on that straight line the diameter, which equals one half. But we only get the one half if we draw that triangle, because otherwise the circumference, you can never relate the circumference to the diameter in an exact fraction. So the only way we can get the exact fraction of one half is if we draw that triangle. And the idea of the unlimited and the limit, so if the circumference is unlimited, so we have no limit on the circumference, but we do have a limit in the triangle. So we're here, we're combining no limit and limit. And maybe when we combine no limit and limit, we get essence. And this was an idea that somebody brought to my attention yesterday, uh, an essence being a word that we looked at last time that we might equate with being. So I thought maybe just having this kind of mental image might be helpful in understanding where Plato is going with this dialogue and understanding this section uh, from 425A to B, our job being to examine all these things with scientific knowledge is to divide where they put together so as to see whether or not both the primary and derivative names are given in accord with nature for any other way of connecting names to things homogenies is inferior and unsystematic. So. Maybe this 
geometry is a bit of a scientific way of looking at things and a bit of a way of dividing things to see where where they put together and where they put together in this drawing that I did is at that half point in the middle. That's where they put together. But we only get that when we draw that triangle because otherwise the there's no limit to the circumference of the circle as a uh, as a proportion to the diameter, which is that straight line. So we have this universe that consists of curves and straight lines, and there's that incommensurability between uh, between those. So I wanted to start with that, and we have some readings that we could uh, dive into, but uh, start first with Sam. Uh, your thoughts, Sam? Yeah, uh, thanks for uh, letting me speak here. Uh, I, this is re uh, rather interesting, I think, in terms of uh, if you so the, the abstraction is only perfect in the abstraction and the circumference being uh, thought of uh, in this philosophical sense as uh, unlimited and but the area or that that triangle is is limited. When it comes to fractal mathematics, uh, chaos theory, uh, a fractal, a lot of times, uh, an example being uh, the hawk snowflake, fractals have many times a uh, an infinite circumference, or, or like not circumference, but an infinite distance. If you were to add up all the distances along the edge that make up the fractal, that distance would go to infinity, but the area contained within the fractal is actually finite. So I just wanted to share that in terms of the interesting relationship there. Thank you. And, and certainly fractal in the sense that there's a repeating pattern in a fractal, I think is something that maybe when we talked about Heraclitus last time, and we'll have a chance to revisit the doctrine of Heraclitus that says that you can't step in the same river twice, that nothing repeats, uh, and there's no connections between things. So you'll never encounter the same thing twice. Maybe that's where we think, well, if you get a fractal, maybe that's where we get this constant repeating. And we know that fractals exist. We see examples of those in the physical universe, but certainly in the conceptual universe, we, we see fractals. Sam? Yeah, and in, in the topic of today about infinite recursion that uh, we'll get to, uh, fractals are a prime example of an infinite recursion. And infinite recursive processes or just recursive processes in, in general are by definition still similar and uh, fractal in structure. Hmm. So just wanted to add that, to that. Yeah, that's appreciated because actually we'll, I'll start with that reading 421E, which is the point where we left off last time. And I'll start with that reading where Socrates does talk about this problem of infinite recursion and how do we get around infinite recursion in identifying things in our minds, if things just continued on forever without any sort of limits. There was a very interesting point that JK made in the last, um, actually there's a couple of very interesting points made in the last episode. JK made the statement, I, th I thought it was a beautiful definition, that the present is the infinite difference between past and future. And so I would put that infinite difference maybe in this area between the circumference and the triangle. There's a difference without finitude, without limit in that area. And so I, I love that definition that JK gave of, of the present being the infinite difference 
between past and future. And there was another point that Jane made, which I really thought was interesting. We were talking about Hegel's uh, system and the idea that there's thesis, which I'll put on this diagram at the point of this straight line that's the beginning, and antithesis, which is the opposite. So I'll put that on the other point. So at the beginning, we have thesis. At the end, we have the antithesis. And Jane said they collide. And so I put the collision at this point in the middle, the point that I labeled one half. And this would be the synthesis. And maybe there's some sort of harmony in that. And Jane said that in that collision, the original thesis is preserved. And so maybe the original thesis would be preserved on that boundary of this circle, if the universe is constructed based on circles, as Socrates said in the Timaeus. Um, so I don't know if these visual images help, but I thought it was really interesting to relate to those two comments in particular, that, that infinite difference between past and future and the collision between thesis and antithesis in which we form that synthesis in our minds, but the original thesis is always preserved along with the synthesis, so it's never lost. Um, and so maybe the universe is this information storage device that stores physical information, but also stores the information of us as beings, uh, the information of our souls, or the information of our animating forces, because the universe we know is, uh, is as I mentioned last time, there's that universal principle of conservation of information. So our souls could be considered information. Why not? So it has to be conserved somewhere. And certainly in the construction of the universe, if you were going to conserve information about something that isn't physically visible, I think a great place to conserve it would be at the boundary of the circle. So food for thought there. So I thought maybe we could dive into the reading for today at 421E. So let me just reshare my screen here. It's a long reading, and I thought we, we could break it into a few parts here. And so I don't know if we would have a volunteer for Socrates and a volunteer for Hermogenes. I thought we could read uh, most of the first page that's on the screen here just to start us off. What? I can help. All right. Thank you. Uh, which role would you like to take, Socrates or Hermogenes? Uh, you pick. All right. Well, do you want to take Hermogenes and I'll take Socrates? Sounds good to me. All right. So 421E. So thank you, Kevin. 421E, Socrates starts by saying, we should remember this, however, if someone asks about the terms from which a name is formed, and then about the ones from which those terms are formed, and keeps on doing this indefinitely, the answerer must finally give up, mustn't he? That's my view at any rate. At what point would he be right to stop? Wouldn't it be when he reaches the names that are not, as it were, the elements of all the other statements and names? For if these are indeed elements, it cannot be right to suppose that they are composed out of other names. Consider agatos, good, in, in the English translation, for example. We said it is composed out of agaston, which translates as admirable, and thun, which translates as fast. And probably Thun is composed out of other names, and those out of still other ones. But if we ever get hold of a name that isn't composed out of other names, we'll be right to say that at last we've reached an element which cannot any longer be carried back to other names. 
That seems right to me, at least. And if the names you're asking about now turn out to be the elements, won't we have to investigate their correctness in a different manner from the one we've been using so far? Probably so. It is certainly probable, Hermogenes. At any rate, it's obvious that all the earlier ones were resolved into these. So if they are indeed elements, as they seem to me to be, join me again in investigating them to ensure that I don't talk nonsense about the correctness of the first names. You have only to speak and I will join in the investigation so far as I'm able. Well, thank you, Kevin. I thought we might just stop there and you know, digest what's going on in these statements here, starting with Socrates' statement that if we keep digging into the origin of names and we never have a point to stop at, we get this kind of infinite recursion. We, we never know where to stop. We never, we're never able to grasp the meaning of a name or the limits of a name that separates that name from another name. And remember, names are how we or, or the symbols that we apply to things which are objects of thought. And there's no limit to an object of thought, I don't think. I don't think we've ever discovered a limit to an object of thought. So how do we avoid this infinite recursion? And there's an interesting use of the word probable in here a few times, which I've underlined. In the last episode, we had that discussion about Socrates' statement that we have to use balance and probability in finding the limits of a thing. And we had that discussion as to why probability was required there. Why can't you be certain about the limits of a thing? Uh, and, and why does probability come into the into play? And Eva raised a very interesting point about balancing. So when we have probabilities and we're balancing probabilities, what are we balancing them against? There's so many things we can balance them against. So we have this problem in defining things, setting one thing from another thing and being certain that we're exchanging the ideas and that we're understanding the ideas in the way we intended to exchange them. And so we have this problem of, or this challenge of using probability if, if there isn't certainty. Sam, your thoughts? It's actually really uh, fascinating here. The things I start thinking about when you're talking about this stuff and probability. And there, there's actually a branch of mathematics uh, that was created uh, this is a sub-branch of probability. Not super long ago, there was a guy that started collecting tanks from uh, World War One, World War Two. And he got really interested in knowing, you know, have I found all of them? And he kind of developed a probabilistic framework around that said question. And that it's been used, the same uh, framework has been used to, uh, you can take a book and uh, you run it through this probability framework and it will give an interesting analysis of output of how many how many letters there are in the alphabet of that book like of the, the the language that that book is written in and uh that's that's an example of using that mathematics that guy developed mm -hmm. how many elements of this system are there to begin mm -hmm. with and what's the odds that we know all the symbols or the elements per se and mm -hmm. i thought that was an interesting relationship there Indeed, yes, and, and an interesting connection to what we've been talking about in terms of artificial technology or artificial intelligence, which is maybe an example of a definition that we can discuss today. What do we mean by artificial intelligence and that technology of GPT-3 technology that I've mentioned in the past few episodes? 
that is trying to simulate or imitate human language. And maybe that we can bring into today's discussion in the context of imitation. If what we exist in, in this present state of becoming is an imitation of the eternal, which is that part that, you know, I read from the Timaeus, everything is an imitation. You, anything that is begotten cannot be eternal. So we live in this kind of imitation state, this, this, uh, uh, what were the use, words that uh, that he used? The uh, the image, the image of eternity, and an imitation of eternity. So it's a very interesting point. How do we know that the imitation is correct, especially when we are starting to apply technology to these things? And certainly, if we think about the construction of the universe with a circle, we can never attain a perfect circle in the present. We know that we can only attain a perfect circle in abstraction in our minds. So thank you for that point. And we'll go to Daniel. Welcome to Plato's Pod. Hi. Yeah, I have a number of questions. I'm just I'm trying to understand the issues here. Because I wasn't, uh, I don't know what, where you brought in probabilities. But if I understand this discussion, it's trying to break down or find the essence of a thing that we get to a point where we can't break it down into another thing that it's related to, and we've come to the bottom, you know, the quanta of things or the ultimate element, as opposed to worrying about how many of them there are. So let's say, if, is that an issue here in probability? You know, have we mm -hmm. exhausted all the things in terms of number? But mm -hmm. the number won't change the essence of things. So there's two issues. One is essence. One is how many of these essences exist. And I don't know if that discussion addresses it or not. And mm -hmm. is that where you brought in probability? Mm -hmm. So that, that's one question. Yeah, I, th I think you, you summarize that well in, in that statement of Socrates, that we can never be certain about the nature of a thing. And so with lack of certainty, we have to resort to probability and use that balance, as you said, to find the essence or the quanta of things. I really like that that expression that you use, the quantum being the smallest thing in the universe, at least in the physical universe. The quantum is the smallest thing that can cause change or can be changed. And so that would be the essence of the thing. So beyond that quantum, there is no change. And so we would know once we reach the quantum of the thing that we have the very basic nature of the thing. Uh, and so that's where probability was required because we can't know for certain. So we have to balance these probabilities. Well, I, I, I'm not sure I understand. We can't know for certain that it's because we haven't exhausted the number, we cannot decipher the essence. Carbon is different from hydrogen, you know, but let's say at mm -hmm. one point, so those are the elements and we can't break it down anymore, right? If we go back a hundred years or whatever, 150 years. Right. Today, we've already gone into particles and break down the atoms. But at this point, theoretically, I think you might argue that we've come to exhaust breaking it down any further to the best of our thinking abilities or the best of our... Right. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. And and certainly the argument started off in this dialogue as to whether we whether names have a basis in nature, like a universal basis, or whether names are based on human convention and use. Uh, 
And we'll see the conclusion today as Socrates says, we need to look both to the nature of a thing, like the, the timeless universal nature of a thing, and to convention, because convention in our human use, as we looked at some examples last time, we add letters to things that change their meaning or change people's perception of the meaning. And we looked at one word in particular, democracy, which has all sorts of meanings. So we're not certain even what democracy means. So because everybody adds their own interpretations to things, their own translations to things. Jane has a, had a great example of translation difference last time uh, between the word supervisor and dictator. So somebody translated the word supervisor in this dialogue and another person translated the word as dictator. It has a very different meaning maybe in, in the current context. Mm -hmm. And so meanings change over time. And so we need to look at both the way humans use them and the way we think that they relate to nature. Uh, and this example of, in the section that we just read, the good composed out of two different words. So the the good agatos, for example, we said is composed out of agaston, admirable, and thun, fast. So we have this good, which is a compound of two words. And so then we have to go and look at the roots of those of that compound, and we see admirable and fast. So what does admirable mean? What does fast mean? Can I just ask another, as an aside, mm -hmm. I'm just curious, when you mentioned that Plato thinks that one, if something came into existence, it has to have an end. Is that, is, I don't know if Aristotle would agree with that. And is that part of the Platonic platform that it must have an end? That's a good question, and I, I'd like to get others' views on that. The way I see it is that uh, in this realm of becoming, where everything is in this continual state of motion, we live in this realm of becoming, or at least in this physical realm of becoming, and in the physical realm of becoming, everything has two limits. As I was drawing on that diagram, everything has a beginning and an end. So we live in this realm of limits, but that's in the physical realm. In the mental realm, the realm of the mind, there are not limits. We we know of no limit to the mind. So we have to assume that there are no limits to the mind. So our existence is a combination of no limit in the mind and physical limits in the state of becoming in the present. So that, that's the way I would answer that question. So yes, in the in the physical state of becoming in the present, there are always two limits, a beginning and an end to a thing. Or as Jane put it, in the way we think of it, maybe thesis and antithesis. So I, I hope that answers the question. It's a very good question, and I appreciate your bringing it up. The others can contribute their thoughts to that as well. So uh, we'll go to Darren. Um, so I'm interested in the ideas in this dialogue about how we can access truth if we're sort of in this middle domain where we we're in the realm of both being and becoming as human beings then how we can have knowledge about things in the dialogue we so we learned in the reading this week that Cratylus seems to have this very i think pretty odd view of language and names where it's impossible to make mistakes in speaking so you're either saying something or you're not saying something but it's impossible to like say something that's a mistake and so everything that's uttered has to have a very pure relationship with reality 
it seems like names have sort of this direct correspondence with reality somehow. So if it doesn't, then it's not that you've said like Cratylus outright denies a possibility of like making errors or making mistakes and speaking, which is kind of odd. So you can't speak falsely. You're just not speaking at all. <laughs> so I wanted to get back to like all this discussion of like geometry and mathematics here. So I'm wondering if you were thinking of this, James, because uh, I think this is just further down from what we read. Uh, 432A uh, or B. So I'll just read this paragraph. I don't know. Maybe you uh, you had you want us to read this later anyway, but I think it's relevant to what we're discussing. So regarding that really strange view that Cratylus has of language. Um, so here, this is what Socrates says. What you say may well be true of numbers, which have to be a certain number or not be at all. For example, if you add anything to the number 10 or subtract anything from it, it immediately becomes a different number. And the same is true of any number, any other number you choose. But this isn't the sort of correctness that belongs to things with sensory qualities, such as images in general. Indeed, the opposite is true of them. Um, an image cannot remain an image if it presents all the details of what it represents. So, okay, I won't, it's a pretty long paragraph actually, so won't read the rest, but but Socrates here is saying that that strange view that Cratylus has, strange naturalistic view that he has of numbers, or sorry, of, of names and language is actually true of numbers. And then, you know, Socrates will come back to this point later that, you know, maybe what Cratylus wants or is trying to achieve with language can only be done with numbers. I think at least that's an implicit suggestion. I mean, it's not elaborated, but I feel like it's one of these clues that we're <laughs> that. Plato loves to drop in these dialogues. So I was wondering, like, if you were thinking of this, James, or what other people make of this, the suggestion seems to be that we have different ways of accessing truth and trying to understand it. And I think language does have to be one of the ways. But I think the suggestion is that it works different from the way numbers do in understanding the world. And numbers, at least in what I just read, Plato is suggesting that numbers, or at least Socrates here, is suggesting that numbers have sort of this more, because here Socrates is saying that language or names can be better or worse. So it's possible to make mistakes with them. Whereas for numbers, you can't, they can't be better or worse. Like if you add a bit to a number, it becomes a different number altogether. It doesn't right. become a better or worse number 10. It just becomes number 11 or number nine. So yeah, it, it just it just curious to me that numbers are being suggested to having a more sort of direct and concrete relationship with reality. And that's an interesting observation, perhaps in the context of probability that we were just talking about, because two plus two equals four, and there's certainty in that. There's no probability involved in that statement. There is certainty involved in that statement. But when uh, we are talking about sensory data, you know, I might see an object as being red, you might see it as being orange, and, and neither of us is necessarily correct or wrong. It's just that we have a different way of seeing things. You know, my way of seeing a color might be different from your way of seeing a color. And actually, Socrates makes a statement in this, this comes a little bit further on, he makes a statement that everything has a color and a shape. Uh, which is a very interesting statement that we can get into. But once we start getting into colors and shapes and sensory data, we lose that certainty. So the certainty exists in the world of mathematics and number. As I said, you know, two plus two equals four or 10 plus one equals 11. 
there's no doubt. We can't argue about that. We acknowledge that that is correct and there's certainty. But when it comes to sensory data, we each have a different way of perceiving things and a different way of prioritizing the data that we're getting from our senses. And so then we start to get these differences. And then we need to reconcile those differences. And that's maybe where the question of balancing and probability comes into play, because the, the sensory data is coming to us in this constantly changing state in, in the physical state of the present. Uh, everything is constantly changing. And so the way I read the the data from from the senses that I'm receiving may be different from the way you're reading it. And, and that's this realm of imitation that that he's talking about here. And so I thought we could maybe get into that. So that, that question was a really good introduction, I think, to this next part. James, James, reading. can yeah. I come in? I'm, yeah, because I th because I am co-host, I'm not able to raise hands. Oh, sure. Yeah. So how accurate are numbers if we go and see numbers as super rational facts they might not be depending on how we see them if it's okay the hardest question in a, in a hospital how would you rate your pain from one to ten i mean everyone feels pain different or if it is uh like we're talking about one plus one equals two is it like one minus one I don't think numbers are that accurate hmm. in a way. I think information needs a little bit of explanation or some form of a goal. Maybe time is a good limit or understanding the meaning hmm. where I am different from my great, great, great grandmother in some ways, but we lived on the same land and we are connected and we see things different because we live in different time, technology, knowledge. So I, I am assuming while we're trying to know things, how much of a space is there for being open-ended, let's say. Interesting statement in the connection of number to physical perception. So in that example of the hospital and rating your pain from one to 10, that's applying a number to a sensory condition or sensory data. And that can be, I think, certainly what Socrates is saying here, when it involves the senses, then it's less certain. And so each one of us perceives things differently. And so if we're, if we're applying a number to something, we would apply different numbers to things. You raised the, the point, though, actually, you just reminded me, because... All knowledge is recollection, as Plato says. You just reminded me of um, a section in the Phaedo, I think it was, where Socrates says, I don't know how two comes to be. Is it because, and it, it, I, I always forget the, the order that he puts this, is it because one is being added to one that two comes to be? Or is it that each one of those is separate and together they make two? It, it, he goes on. It, it's quite an interesting discussion about how, how two comes to be. So maybe what I said about number, at least in terms of the origin of number, maybe what I said should be revised. So maybe we'll see what others say about that. I think certainly in the way we conduct ourselves and all of the science, the nature of, or the current nature of number is not debated. Two plus two equals four. I don't think I've ever heard anybody debate that, but maybe it, the question is the origin of number is is questionable or debatable. So I, I think that's a good point, and I'd like to see what others say about that too. 
maybe we'll take JK first because he hasn't spoken yet and then we'll go to Sam. So we'll go to JK. Yeah, regarding number, I wonder if there's uh, two senses uh, to understanding number. We think of a number in the mind, right? Like the number two, right? It's in your mind, but it's not in the spatial domain, as opposed to thinking the number two as two things in the world. So that's a spatialization of that, that number. So there's a difference there, right? And so I'm, my question is whether, you know, uh, does number, relying on numbers to represent reality, represent things in the world. It's like language is an imitation of what is in the world, right? What the objects in the world. There's so many different languages that each culture has a different names for how they describe the world. It's an imitation of what is they perceive to be in the world, right? But uh, it seems like number is a, is a more universal way of, you know, cuts across all these uh, relativistic uh, differences of names and so forth. So is a number is a more accurate, uh, more universal and accurate description of reality? Or is it naming? Naming is, uh, I guess it would be more um, relativistic and um, less universal and perhaps even less, less accurate. Because with the name, we're not known the thing in itself, which is kind of like what the thing is like, you know, saying this thing is like the name that I'm giving it. So we use that kind of approximation image of approximation, a symbol to, to correspond to that thing. It's a kind of like, a, similar to the question, I guess the Darren was asking too, that um, I'm trying to understand the difference here and the, the nuance of that, uh, mm-hmm. so. And, and that's a, an interesting observation that spatialization of number, that was an interesting application of it. I, I wonder if number is what gives us precise limits, at least in the way that we speak to each other in the way we communicate or inform each other. Number is number, and there's no debate what two represents versus what one represents or what three represents. Whereas we debate, we can debate the nature of the limits of a thing. We don't debate the nature of a number. And so number gives us a means of communicating about the limits in our current state of becoming that is less clear when we use other symbols to communicate about those limits. So maybe that's a thought uh, that you just brought out, at least made me think about is, is maybe that mode of communication with number is more precise. Uh, it makes me think of Galileo's statement that the universe is all about number, right? It's if the language of the universe is, is number and geometry. Right, right. But you can think of a uh, uh, number as something that's non-spatial, non-spatialized, in which case it is a kind of a platonic form. And, um, you know, kind of like uh, is associated with the question of whether mathematics is um, discovered or created, right? If it's something that we created, you know, mathematics, then it's probably based on a spatialization of numbers. Mm-hmm. That we, we, you know, we count things in the world and then we, we use that kind of method of counting mm-hmm. and then symbolize it with a series of numbers. But if it's something more platonic, like it is a realistic, you know, imitation of or representation of, of the world, of, of the essence of the world, you know, mm-hmm. the essence, uh, mm-hmm. like if it's a platonic form, then it's something that we discovered. Interesting way of putting it. The Certainly there is no thing in physical existence that is two and nothing other than two. So two is a description of something, but it doesn't have an existence of its own in the physical universe. So maybe that's an interesting way of thinking about that spatialization that you're talking about. 
let's see what others think. I have Sam and Daniel and Ella and Darren. We'll go in that order. Sam. Uh, so I, I wanted to bring up something. There's a number of things uh, that have been brought up that I want to talk about in terms of uh, what Eva talked about. Um, what to me seemed like a perception of numbers and uh, what, what we perceive them to be in a certain situations and something that came up from at least my background in, in the math world. And say you're standing there looking at a pillar and someone asks you how many pillars there are and you just see the one pillar you say oh, there's only one and it has a certain width to it. So if you stand maybe 50 feet to the right of the pillar, all of a sudden you see there's an entire row of pillars that go back, you know, there's 10 pillars there, but you, from your perspective, there's only one. And now your perspective, you're seeing that there's 10. So perspective really plays a big part in our thoughts of the numbers of things that we're supposedly counting. And in regards to like, what is the number two and one plus one is two. And what does that mean? And something that I've been thinking about a lot lately is, you know, so like you have one apple plus one orange that equals two fruits and the units are quite interesting perspective to add to the equations because like one plus one equals two, but what are the units, you know, like what, what are you adding and what, uh, what is two actually represent? And in relation to that, again, is like four over two that fraction is very different than two over one. And it's very different than the number two itself because all those fractions resolve to be two and what I term as a magnitude of two, but four people or you have four cookies and you want to divide them against two people, that information is stored in that ratio in that number four over two versus having two cookies for one person, two over one, the information stored in the equation is that's information. And you lose that information whenever you collapse the equation to a single number two. And so I think that's some interesting points there. Those are great examples. Thank you. And, and the idea of information being stored in the equations, when you collapse four over two, you get two. We would agree on that, but there's very different information in that fraction four over two than there is in the number two. That's a great example. And the example of an apple and an orange being different units, but together adding up to two, but two, two fruits, not two apples and two oranges. So that's a really interesting example. And I'd like to see what others think about that. It's uh, really good. We'll go to Daniel and Ella and then Darren. Yeah, I'm just, uh, I mean, in a way, I, I'm, I was going to address the same thing that Sam is trying to decipher. I'm not sure if numbers are just distracting from what we're really trying to do, in the sense that the question is going to determine the answer. So, for example, the, you know, the example that Sam gave about two items or apple orange, is that two items? It depends on the question. How many fruits are there? If there's one apple and one orange, you'll answer two. How many apples are there? Only one. So what we're trying to find out will determine how we approach it. So and that's why I think from the start, you know, that's this question I had also is, are we looking for the essence of something? That's a different question from quantity. 
And the relative question will determine the category and the type of answer. Without defining the question, the answer almost becomes meaningless in some level, right? And num we just use numbers as a tool to help us categorize it. But numbers don't exist on their own. Numbers are abstract concepts. All math is, you know, geometry is just applied to this planet. But it, if we wouldn't have this planet, you still have the geometry as a, some type of abstract entity. So I guess the point is, and I'm not sure if Plato addresses it, the question will determine the answer and what we're trying to look for. I don't know if that makes sense or not. I think that's that's great. And and I think it's something that we need to consider, especially as he, in the first part of the Cratylus that we talked about, it was said that we use or we refer to things in order to instruct each other or to maybe share information. And so, as you say, I think that was a really good way of saying we have to know what we're talking about. So what is the question? I think that's critical. And to understand what things we're looking for in the question, then will inform the nature of the response, will refer to the same thing. So in what you said, I think, you know, are we looking for the quantity of fruit or are we looking for the quantity of apple or orange? And each of those, there's three different things in that statement or three different options. We have fruit, apple, or orange. Apple and orange belong to the set that we call fruit, but they're individual things. So very good question. And I think Plato would very much say we need that clarity. And that's why we need to understand what we're talking about when we're exchanging these complex ideas and using things in our statements to understand the limits of the things that the question is looking for, and therefore the, the response will, will address. That, that's great. Thank you very much. And when you said that numbers are a tool to categorize things, I thought that was a really interesting way of looking at it. So we'll see how that ties into others thinking. The only other point is a lot of the math was discovered as a game first, playing around with, you know, abstract concepts and formulas and mm -hmm. only find application in reality later on. Einstein used, you know, had to develop math or find a math that'll fit in with what he's, what he's saying. That sort of right. builds on what you're saying, James. Right. Yeah. Math is, you know, maybe something that's discovered rather than created, right? So... So we'll go to Ella, then Darren, and then Jane. Yeah, I would concur with the other statements being offered that math is possibly an essence throughout the universe, and it's a system to be used by humans, and it appears in nature, in symmetry and patterns, in the formation of how birds fly. I think it's there. I think it also may be a part of the human brain. Someone mentioned Plato's forms or mind, I should say, that we have access, some preliminary access. Of course, you have to learn mathematics skills. However, we seem to have some sort of template to understand it as humans at a higher level. And I would also say that if that is so, then math, would it be, I would ask the question, is it being, if it's a part of the mind of ideas, is it being and infinite? Thanks. 
Well, thank you. And that gives us a lot to think about. Uh, certainly the concept of number being a template um, that gives us some sort of preliminary access to information. And I think maybe, well, JK mentioned in the previous episode about memory and the nature of our memory. And that was, uh, I'm just looking for this quote here that I have from the Mino. So the Mino was Plato's dialogue on the nature of virtue. But it gets into the question of knowledge. And in the Mino, he said, all knowledge is recollection. So then the question is recollection or memory of what? And I have this quote from the Mino 98A here about knowledge versus opinions. So at that section in, in the Mino, Socrates says, for true opinions, as long as they remain, are a fine thing, and all they do is good, but they are not willing to remain long, and they escape from a man's mind, so that they are not worth much until one ties them down by an account of the reasons why. And that, Mino, my friend, is recollection, as we previously agreed. After they are tied down in the first place, they become knowledge, and then they remain in place. And so maybe this is this form of preliminary access, and maybe that's what Socrates was demonstrating in the Mino when he took the uneducated slave and he started deconstructing a square with a slave, and the slave demonstrated knowledge that he had never been taught, but knowledge that seemed to be internal. So maybe there's that internal template there, uh, and maybe that is based on, on numbers. So I think that's a really interesting thought. May I also add one quick thing? Yes. Lang pre preliminary access to language, according to Noam Chomsky, is also demonstrated that there may be universal precepts to language built in to um, human children and how they learn language so uh, quickly. So maybe there is a tie-in with math and language being a part of us, but also a part of the universe. Mm -hmm. Fascinating idea. And, and let's see what people think about that. I think that's... Uh... Certainly, we do seem to have this ability to catch on to things and to learn things. And actually, there was a question about the original knowledge in this section that we're reading today. And I'm just looking for it. I think it's in 438, where Socrates asks, where did the first namer get the knowledge that allowed the first namer to set a name for that thing? Which is an interesting question. And I think you, you raised that in an interesting context. So thank you for that. I have Darren and Jane and Steve. And so maybe just we'll go to uh, maybe Jane and then Steve and then Darren, just because Jane and Steve hasn't, haven't spoken yet. And then we'll go to Darren, if that's okay. So Jane. This conversation has been greatly um, interesting, but uh, I was a bit hesitant whether this would add to the conversation or not, but I, I, think, I think it probably will. When we were reading the Timaeus, I sort of drew out a, a little scheme for, for myself of how some dichotomies are presented uh, um, within the dialogue. Um, and I, I've built out the following logic. So when we're talking about the realm of being uh, in the platonic world, the realm of being is the realm of the platonic forms of the platonic ideas. It is the eternal, the non-material, it is the truth, the reason, and intelligence of the world, if it could be said that way. And then on the other side of this, the dichotomy to this is the becoming, the changing. It is not truth, but belief. It is our senses and opinions. It never is. It is always becoming. And then in the Timaeus, there was this interesting part where, where those 
um, two dichotomies were also represented by the same and the other. And between the same and the other, we have the essence, which is actually, um, from what I understood in the dialogue, is a representation of the soul of the person. And so this way we can build out three parts of the human, the person living within the world, which is the intelligence as part of the being, realm of being, the body, which is part of the realm of becoming, and then the soul, the essence, which ties it together. Thank you. That's a really interesting way of presenting it that I think is very helpful. And it makes me think of the Republic as well, the divided line, the divided line of knowledge, which is a line that's divided unequally. And maybe that's part of this challenge of balancing that we have to do is to deal with that unequal division of that line of knowledge that starts with um, perception and then goes on to belief, then opinion, then knowledge. And knowledge is what's tied down, I think it's from that section of the Mino that I just read. So that was very helpful. And then, you know, you mentioned the soul as well, which also makes me think of the Republic and the soul being divided in three parts as, as Plato sees it, spirit, desire, and those two parts are moderated by reason. And so maybe this reason ties to the essence that you're talking about there in, in the nature of the soul. So that was a really interesting way of looking at it. So thank you for that. And we'll go to Steve and then Darren. Hi, thank you for, for doing this. I think my point is in line with the idea of divided line, at least the way I see it, is, which is different than Plato's. There's two different ways or two different uh, concepts you can have. You can have a discrete or an analog particle or wave. And if you look at the idea of the wave particle duality, that there's really, you know, it's just two different ways of looking at the same thing. Say like numbers are discrete instruments. So that's why there's, it's easier for us to make a uh, distinction between one and the other, whereas things that are analog, feelings, emotions, they're harder, they're more wave-like or more analog. So it's it's harder to make those clear-cut discrete differences because it's it's not discrete, it's analog. And I think that was uh, what was addressed by Roger Penrose in one of your earlier uh, uh, recordings was about you know, he was talking about Gödel's incompleteness theorem, and you know, even though uh, numbers are seem like they're universal and they're all based on a, a theory, the theories are true only based on the amount of our belief in the theories, as as what I recall his explanation. So, my point that I'm going towards is that that we have cognitive bias and we also have evolutionary biases. So as living organisms, uh, we may have certain biases built into us that we see the world based on our evolutionary adaptions for survival. So we see things that are harmonic and uh, what we would call beautiful or the absolute or the ultimate. All of those are, are reinforcing to our evolutionary biases. So we have a, a evolutionary cognitive bias to think of, of things like eternity as good, as opposed to, you know, that that, that being the case. So that was the, uh, the point that I wanted to make. And uh, thanks again. 
Thank you. And you gave us a lot to think about in what you just said. The expression of, or the comparison of the particle and the wave was interesting, you know, maybe to tie back to what Daniel said at the beginning about the quantum of things. What is the minimum particle uh, of a thing? And then all things, or at least things then start to form a wave when they join together. And, you know, maybe that's a little connection to quantum physics when we think about the nature of things. And then ultimately, what's the universe? You know, I pose the question in my notes for this session, what is the thing that we call universe if it's not the continuum of all things? It's like a harmony of all things. So we have individual discrete things, as you're saying, uh, and numbers maybe are what allow us to discretize things or, or unitize things. But then we get into this realm of the analog, which I, I like the way you use that word, which is really ties into this idea of imitation. We're, li we're living in this state of becoming, which is an imitation uh, or an image, moving images, Plato said in, in the Timaeus, of the eternal. Uh, we, we ourselves are not eternal. We're just an image of the eternal. We're, we're an imitation of the eternal. And so analog is an interesting way of thinking about that. And certainly the cognitive biases uh, come out in our understanding of, uh, or our exchange of understanding of the nature of things. Each of us applies a little bit of a bias, maybe. You know, that example, again, that Jane gave last time of the translation of the word supervisor, which is in the version that I used, we need to supervise the rules, or we need a, we need a supervisor for the rules, uh, as opposed to a dictator, which is the, the word that the that was used in Jane's translation, or the translation that Jane was using. And the word dictator has a very different cognitive bias now than it did maybe when that translation was done, because we have a lot more examples of dictators now, or we use that word a lot more in a very negative context now. So very interesting, very interesting thoughts to to work on there. So thank you for that. And we'll go to Darren, but just, I just wanted to point out, I did find out that I did find that quote, actually I had it in my notes. Do you think that the giver of the first names also knew the thing that he named? So that was at 438A. So we'll go to Darren. So um, I just, I wanted to respond to actually something that Ella said about uh, whether numbers are in the realm of being itself, or maybe they are being itself somehow. And this also comes back to the question of how uh, language and numbers might differ in their ability to help us understand the world. So I'll just go back to also like maybe just build on my previous comment. So I think it's interesting that Cratylus in this dialogue seems to want names to do what Ella is suggesting that numbers might be or might might be able to do. Cratylus wants names to have this very direct uh, relation to things and so that they directly express the essence of things. When we say a word, we directly have some access to the essence of things. So I, I should have maybe also brought this up earlier, which is um the section at 424D. So this builds off of um the uh, passage that James had us read much earlier about how when we want to find out the essence of a word or we want to we want to build words in a naturalistic way, we have to keep going back. So a word might reflect the nature of a thing by being built on other words, which might describe the thing. But then like at a certain point, like we have to get like, what are the basic most primary words? How do they reflect the thing? So then they start talking about vowels and consonants and all that. 
So the picture that is being described, so I'll just read this like few lines here uh, at 424C. So Socrates is actually helping Cratylus here build it, build up this naturalistic picture of how how words can have this very direct, immediate access to reality or the essence of things. So Socrates says here, so mustn't we first divide off the vowels and then the others in accordance with their differences in kind? That is to say, the consonants and mutes, as I take it, they're called by specialists in these matters, and the semi-vowels, which are neither vowels nor mutes, and as to the vowels themselves, mustn't we also divide off those that differ in kind from one another? Then, when we've also well divided off the things that are, the things to which we have to give names, if there are things to which they can all be carried back as names are to the letters and from which we can see that they derive, and if different kinds of beings are found among them, in just the way that there are among the letters, once we've done all this well, we'll know how to apply each letter to what it resembles. Okay, so I'll stop there. This picture that Cratylus is describing of how words might reflect reality, so we have to sort of build them up, like somehow consonants and vowels all have to correspond to something in reality, and then we can build those into words which correctly match reality and so on. So Socrates is describing the world, is saying that the world will have to look this way too, in this sort of constructivist manner. So of course, like in, in the passage I, I indicated earlier, Socrates is saying that words actually can't do this very well because words are just, he says words are like images, but it's numbers that might be able to do this. So I, I guess this might also be responding to um, something that, um, who was it? Eva said earlier about how numbers might work because the idea is not just to like arbitrarily assign numbers to certain things, is that they they form a certain kind of certain certain kinds of relations that also reflect the relations in reality. And in fact, they do it in a sort of direct way. Because remember, like the, the passage I read earlier where Socrates says that numbers can't do this because language can't do this. Because you might add, you know, certain consonants to a word and it doesn't detract from its ability to represent what you want to represent because it just might be conventional. Mm -hmm. um, there's an argument about that. But numbers can't do this. If you add a bit or, or, or you take a bit away from a number, it's a totally different thing. So I don't know. I think, I mean, the difficulty is that Plato isn't laying all this out direct, like at face value for us. It's sort of bits and pieces in different places. But I feel like it's suggesting that what Cratylus wants words to be able to do, uh, you know, and he loves etymology. He thinks etymology is like the most important thing. <laughs> but like uh, Socrates wants to sort of quietly suggest that what Kratos really wants are numbers because numbers will do for understanding the world, what Kratos wants words to do or language to do. And, and the point that numbers give relations to one another, that's uh, it ties, I think, to what Sam said in terms of, you know, the four over two being a different kind of relationship than two on its own. And that's an interesting observation. And thank you for reading that part that I had there on the screen. Actually, it was that was Socrates talking about needing to divide things off. Or, so, it, And that goes back to that drawing that I put at the beginning of the circle. So how do you divide the circle if the ratio of circumference to diameter is never fixed? It, it never renders into a fixed fraction. It just continues going on forever because of this problem with pi, it just goes on forever without repeating digits. Uh, and each division, you know, another way, another way to say division is multiplication by a fraction. 
So dividing by two is the same as multiplying by the fraction one half. And so we're taking everything in the circle, which Plato says in the Timaeus, everything goes in a circle, uh, everything in the universe goes in a circle. And then how do you divide the circle uh, and understand it? Because there's inherent uncertainty in that. And certainly we live in a universe that's a physical universe that's governed by Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. And as we've already talked about Gödel's incompleteness theorem. So there's this uncertainty that's always prevailing and we have to come out to some sort of resolution about it. So, so thank you for reading that. And there is a part that I want to get to next, which I'll, I'll just put on the screen, which we can start considering this section at 428a about the, the nature of knowledge and recollection and memory of motion. We, we talked last time about Socrates' statement that wisdom is understanding motion or knowledge of motion, motion being change in spatial position or change in state. That's how motion was defined in the Theotetus. So knowledge of motion is wisdom, Socrates said in, in the last part that we talked about uh, two weeks ago. And I'll just put this 428D on the screen just so that we can consider that. And we'll go to that in a bit. We'll take Abraham and Sam first. So Abraham, welcome. Oh, hello, everyone. Uh, thank you very much. By listening to all other people's thoughts, some thought came to me too that I'd like to share a little bit. So I think uh, we use the word probability a lot nowadays. Uh, I think it's like a fashion, fashion word, I would say. But let's say in thousand years, we might not use that word at all or little because we know partly, maybe let's assume we know a little more in the future. So this language might be outdated. Like each word might have historicity, right? Like a living organism. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, the, when it comes to, uh, someone mentioned already about the heuristics and uh, sense-making as a human we do, it should have to make sense mostly, but it does not have to make 100% sense because we will live in mental institution in our mind. So we need like a, a certainty. At the same time, we need some elusiveness to sense make a little more, not, not to go crazy, I would say. So we need a child in our mind. So what I'm saying is when it comes to language, we denote, right? like definition, we like it, we play with it, like a legal way. But a word or even sentence more like a poetry, it has connotations. It has a feelings and colors and textures and sinews, something like that, let's say. So some people, I'm just laying out, it doesn't, it's not linear uh, the statement, okay? This is non-linear in a way even though it contains a lot of linear elements. Let's say I'm making a sentence. I learned English yesterday, okay? Yeah, I'm talking about that. Yeah, I learned in high school. So when I make a sentence, let's say English speakers, in a context, some people understand just by hearing a few words, they can almost conclude of what I'm trying to convey. But some people might not understand after listening two minutes, the same sentence. What I'm saying is when we say human language, human language is trying to capture something or convey something, 
but it's almost like conception, I would say. So like a mother can sense or father their own child, even before the birth, right? They can dream and things like that. But random person have no idea whether this even child exists or not, whether you call it uh, connected or sensitivity, attachment, you can use many words. What I'm saying is what we are trying to communicate has a lot of limits. Just uh, I gave you some, just the example. We try to touch something. I'm not saying this is uh, uh, useless. Uh, this is uh, the human endeavor. Uh, lastly, I would like to throw out this one. When someone asks you, what do you see? Do you see the world through your left eyes or your right eyes? Or none of them or both of them? What does that mean? I think since we have two eyes, most people, let's say, we tend to think we can see things objectively, right? But what your left eye is seeing is not identical with what your right eye is seeing. There's a lot of uh, presumption as an organism to survive. Uh, anyhow, yeah, thank mm -hmm. you. Well, thank you, because I, I think you raised some points there in terms of connotation and perspective, which is very important that we don't get simply by reading the words necessarily. Sometimes we actually, and that's why I think Plato's approach of dialogue is so important because you can sort out these differences in meanings and differences in understanding in dialogue, which, you know, just by reading the words, you don't necessarily understand the connotations. And I think that's very important. And I think you alluded to creativity as well, which we talked about last time as well. I think, um, I can't remember who mentioned the point, but there was this point where if you, if you just follow the rules, there'll be no creativity. And certain creativity is what we need as humans in order to be able to grow and to be able to find new paths in the future. We can't just get stuck in the way that we've always been. So allowing creativity to come through in our language and in our exchange of complex ideas, which are based on things is so critical. You know, I, I just want to read, there's a little passage that I, I wanted to read. I, I talked about it, was it last season or the first season? I can't remember. Uh, there was a little clip of an interview with Melanie Mitchell, who's a computer scientist that I played. And she wrote a book called Artificial Intelligence, A Guide for Thinking Humans. And just to give you an example of what we're talking about in terms of connotation, she's talking about programming a computer to decipher the following situation. It's a situation that happens in a restaurant. She writes, a man went into a restaurant and ordered a hamburger, cooked rare. When it arrived, it was burned to a crisp. The waitress stopped by the man's table. Is the burger okay, she asked. Oh, it's just great, the man said, pushing back his chair and storming out of the restaurant without paying. The waitress yelled after him, hey, what about the bill? She shrugged her shoulders, muttering under her breath, why is he so bent out of shape? I think we understand by the connotation and our own experience, what that means. She asked the question. She says, now let me ask you a question. Did the man eat the hamburger? I think we would understand, as humans interpreting that language, we would understand the answer to that question. She's making the point that it is devilishly difficult to program a computer to understand that question. In, order, in other words, to set rules for a machine to understand that without having had the experience of going to a restaurant and ordering something that you you received and it wasn't what you ordered. 
Um, so that was just a little example, maybe you just brought on about what you said about understanding connotation. I just wanted to, uh, maybe I'll just, I, I, I've got Sam and then Darren, but it's before we go to that, I just wanted to introduce this section at 428D. I'll just read this short paragraph where Socrates says, but Cradless, I have long been surprised at my own wisdom and doubtful of it too. That's why I think it's necessary to keep reinvestigating whatever I say, since self-deception is the worst thing of all. How could it not be terrible, indeed, when the deceiver never deserts you, even for an instant, but is always right there with you? Therefore, I think we have to turn back frequently to what we've already said in order to test it by looking at it backwards and forwards simultaneously, as the aforementioned poet puts it. So let's now see what we have said. We said that the correctness of a name consists in displaying the nature of the thing it names. And is that statement satisfactory? So the idea of looking backwards and forwards simultaneously, again, gets us maybe thinking of that circle again, you know, because in the circle, you're just continuously going around. And so you can look back and forth simultaneously once you identify that half point in the middle of that line that cuts that circle in half. So I just use that uh, example there. And this is, I think, a reference to this dialectic where we're looking for the first principle of a thing. So you can't just simply go along one path. You have to understand all the paths in order to figure out the connotations of the word. So I just wanted to introduce that before we go to, we'll go to Sam and then Darren and then Steve. It's interesting how this has gone back to the topic I was going to be talking about in terms of knowledge and knowledge graphs and the connections that and self-deception is rather interesting in this realm because whenever I, I mentor a number of people uh, and uh, family members and stuff on, on math and memory and remembering things. And uh, one of the things that at least is that I've been kind of central on in the past is uh, when it comes to the points of real knowledge or whatever that may be what things you're trying to remember it's the connections between those things or the things that help you remember those things in general those at least in your mind's eye do not have to be in any way real if that makes any sense so an example of this would be like uh the number 23 so the number 23 to me looks like the costume from uh Robin Hood, the cartoon, Disney cartoon uh, that Robin Hood is wearing during the archery competition, which is like the stork thing. And the reason I think that is because number two itself kind of looks like a flamingo if you kind of drew some legs on it and some wings. And uh, the number three looks like a bow and arrow that's kind of being pulled in the wrong direction. So it's a, it's a quite surreal imagery that brings to me the essence of the number 23. And so if I have a friend, per se, that has a, a birthday on October 23rd, 1958 or something like that, then in my mind's eye, I can put my friend in that costume, put him in a Halloween party in the farmland in my head that makes up the calendar in that represents the month of October. And, uh, and then I, I can make something up for the year. But uh, the, all those points, all those connections that at least I deem them as these things that are pointing at what I'm actually wanting to remember, but the things that I am remembering that give me that information to distill it out from describe what I'm wanting to remember. And eventually I don't remember 
these random surreal things and just comes to me out of uh just involuntarily just it just comes out and so i think it's a rather interesting in terms of like because i'm in a, in, in a way you know i'm self-deceiving in a sense because it's like all this not it's it's a surreal bogus type information but there is to me at least in my own mind's eye i have the connection between what that deception is and what the reality is and so i thought that was a quite a interesting connection to that topic that's a great example of how you remember 23 by reference to these physical objects really interesting and, and each of us has a different way of remembering and ultimately uh, what makes us each individuals perhaps is the way we remember and the things that we remember and so the function of memory is very important. And I think that's Plato talks about that uh, a lot. I just wanted to actually, it made me think of this section. It's around 422 around there. I just, I have a, a part of this on the screen where Socrates says, answer me this. If we hadn't a voice or a tongue and wanted to express things to one another, wouldn't we try to make signs by moving our hands, head, and the rest of our body, just as dumb people do at present? And by dumb, he doesn't mean stupid, which is the way we use dumb now. He means people who don't have the physical ability to speak. Uh, Hermogenes answers, what other choice would we have, Socrates? And Socrates answers, so if we wanted to express something light and weight or above us, I think we'd raise our hand toward the sky in imitation of the very nature of the thing, which was maybe what you were doing in, in that image of 23. And if we wanted to express something heavier below us, we'd move our hand towards the earth. And if we wanted to express a horse or any other animal galloping, you know that we'd make our bodies and our gestures as much like theirs as possible. So it just made me think of that passage there. And uh, it gets us back to that idea of imitation and, and how our language is dealing with understanding imitations. So thank you for that. And we'll go to Steve. First off, I'd like to say how um, much I appreciate what Abraham said about heuristics. To me, it cuts to um, what the uh, whole discussion about naming is centered on. There could be good heuristics or poor heuristics. What best represents, you know, what is being said, or what what the name is is representing. So um, I wanted to just mention that point. I thought that was very uh, insightful. But specifically to the uh, 428D that we we're just reading about I'm surprised at my own wisdom and doubtful of it too, since self-deception uh, is the worst thing of all. That goes back to the idea of cognitive bias. And I'm trying to come up with a term for evolutionary bias. Maybe species cognitive bias would be a, a good term for that, that we're, there's certain things that we just can't see. And the other part that you have underlined, looking at it backwards and forward simultaneously, and the, what was mentioned before about motion being the key to understanding, it reminds me of uh, Zeno's paradox about the arrow. And, uh, you know, they're looking at it from the point of view, is the, where's the arrow in the past? Is it moving? It's no longer moving. It's not moving in the future. And if you look at it at the present at any discrete moment, it's not really moving because you're looking at it at a discrete point. So the reason I bring it up is because I'm in another group that's looking at Nargajuna and looking at Sanskrit version. Of, he has a similar sort of uh, paradox in the uh, 
MMK chapter two. And one of the points that was brought up in discussing that is that there's two different ways that Sanskrit authors, speakers, uh, cultures understand these paradoxes and looks at uh, philosophy compared to the way the, the Greek uh, Western. In the Western or Greek, it's more of a geometrical view. In the Sanskrit, it's more of a grammatical view. So there's a point where a lot of what we're talking about, because we're talking about the Greek Platonic view, we're talking in geometric terms. But in the Sanskrit discussions and all the authors that are writing about that, they're talking about it in grammatical terms. So just as a uh, little point I wanted to add to that. Thank you. Thank you. And that's really helpful. I didn't realize there was that difference, but it's certainly something to think about, particularly as we from one perspective, having a certain linguistic background using, you know, as you say, geometric conventions, try to understand people with different linguistic backgrounds. And that's a really interesting comparison. I, I didn't realize that. That's very helpful. And certainly, you know, the knowledge of motion, maybe that when you talked about Zeno's paradox of the arrow, maybe knowledge of motion, which again, Socrates says is, is wisdom, is knowledge of motion, helps us to at least understand the bases of those paradoxes. And there's lots of paradoxes that exist. And certainly Zeno brought a number of very interesting paradoxes. Maybe we can actually talk about Zeno's paradoxes in one of these episodes. But that was a good example too. So I, I really like that. So thank you. We'll go to Abraham. Oh, thank you. Uh, I, I felt the same, Steve. I didn't know about uh, how Sanskrit perceives the word or describes what I'd like to uh, articulate, if I can, is, I don't know how to put it, but let's say the, the person uh, or the entity which gives name as a namer, and also the entities like humans, hypothetically, who can name except the, the original namer is naming. So we are partaking in this activity of naming a lot of them. So can we comprehend the, let's say wisdom or the totality or comprehensiveness of the namer. So my question is, we talked about mathematics a little bit and also language, right? Two different ways to look at or, or perceive, uh, express the world, let's say. In mathematics, we need agreement, which is axiom, right? Axiom, if we change it, the rule of the game change. So we feel safe. As long as we don't delve into higher mathematics, let's say, they want to shake the world, the mathematical world. But when it comes to language, again, it's similar but different. What I mean by that is, what's the agreement? I'm not talking about we speak English or a certain language. What's the bottom line, let's say? So I think uh, even though we have uh, physicality, our mind move around like almost in the realm of uh, mathematics or spirit realm. So in order to comprehend better, we need more knowledge, to put it more succinctly. We need to know what's going on before our birth and after our death. We don't have that knowledge set. In mathematics, as long as we have agreed upon axiom, we can play, we can create so many things. But in human 
at least communication language realm, human language, it's so incomplete. So basically, if someone is very good at human language, they can hijack because nobody knows for sure. So what I'm saying is that's why shamans historically have been so powerful because they saw this uh, human incompleteness, weakness, human being, they were able to bridge the gap. I personally believe uh, to confess there are evil spirits and good spirits, but some people don't believe it. Regardless, my contention is that in order to proceed to make human language, human communication a little more complete like mathematics does, we need that entity without that, this whole discussion can be hijacked by writers or great uh, priest or philosopher, guru, whatever you name it, even, even let's say teacher at school. Because for children, teachers are there, they're like a god, right? So I think uh, at some point, I think in that regard, Greek, some Greek realized that living as a philosopher at some point converts with living as, I would say, religious people in a way. Yeah, that's my observation. Yeah. That was really gives us a lot to think about too. I, you mentioned the axiom, understanding of an axiom makes us feel comfortable, but then you questioned our understanding of the historical record of a name. I think you use the example of, you know, people used a name in one sense before you were born. And so when you're born and you start using those names, you need to understand on what basis those names arose, which is very much, I think, what this dialogue is about. I actually have an axiom on the screen here. This is Euclid's, the statement Euclid made that things that are like one thing are like each other. And I've drawn two lines sharing a common center crossing each other at right angles and join them as triangles. And I give uh, the Pythagorean theorem that x squared plus y squared equals z squared. And then I show the relationships of, of each of those halves of the lines there. So that's axiomatic maybe. And we can agree on that, but we can't agree on the origin of words. So maybe that leads into, and you know, as always, we're running short on time, but there's so much to deal with in this section. But it, it's been such a great discussion. I just maybe lead us towards the conclusion of this by reading this section here. So maybe I'll just go ahead and read it. Where Socrates, so this is in 436b to d. So Socrates says, but don't you see, Cratylus, that anyone who investigates things by taking names as his guides and looking into their meanings run no small risk of being deceived? Cratylus says, in what way? Socrates says, it's clear that the first name giver gave names to things based on his conception of what those things were like. Isn't that right? Cratylus says, yes. Socrates follows, and if his conception was incorrect and he gave names based on it, what do you suppose will happen to us if we take him as our guide? Won't we be deceived? And, and maybe, Abraham, this is the example of the teacher that you use. You know, the teacher is, we revere the teacher and we take the teacher as our guide. Will we be deceived? So Cradlus continues, but it wasn't that way, Socrates. The name giver had to know the things he was naming. Otherwise, as I've been saying all along, his names wouldn't be names at all. And here's a powerful proof for you that the name giver didn't miss the truth. His names are entirely consistent with one another. Or haven't you noticed that all names you utter are based on the same assumption and have the same purpose? So here I think Cradlus is saying that there's an internal consistency to the names based on what the name giver intended to them to mean, but he's not dealing with the communication of the names. Uh, Socrates goes on, but surely that's no defense, Cradlus. The name giver might have made a mistake at the beginning and then forced the other names to be consistent with it. There would be nothing strange in that. 
Geometrical constructions often have a small unnoticed error at the beginning with which all the rest is perfectly consistent. That's why every man must think a lot about the first principles of anything and investigate them thoroughly to see whether or not it's correct to assume them. And so I thought that was an interesting connection with what you just said. Uh, and then I'll, I'll read the conclusion next, but we'll take Sam first. This, uh, this little discussion right here that you're reading out loud and talking up in terms of things, you know, being consistent with the initial measurements or initial imperfections or whatever you want to call them in woodworking and in manufacturing in general and uh, tolerance estimation in general, uh, it's a rather important thing to to understand that that process of the initial conditions and what you end up with, especially if the initial conditions of a measuring stick and then using that measuring stick to perform operations or you know measurements on various things. And if you use a measuring stick, like you go from one point to another, measure it, and then you take that measuring point and you take your same measuring stick and then you take the end of it and you put it on that new point and then measure again. You do that over and over and over again, that, that error is going to compound over and you'll be off by, you know, a quarter inch maybe after 20 measurements. And so I just thought that was an interesting and uh, perhaps important thing to bring up in regards to that that observation by uh, Socrates or Crows. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And that's helpful too in the context, I think, of what Plato's talking about or what Socrates talks about in terms of the primary names and the derivative names. So if you think of each derivative name maybe as a measurement in the context that you mentioned, Sam, it's a measurement maybe of the primary, and we slice off maybe a bit to create a derivative, uh, like the example that we saw before, where one name breaks down into two different names. Each time we break that down, I think what you said is probably very applicable, that there's a little bit of an error or a little bit of a difference or potential difference in interpretation every time a derivative is sliced off of the primary and that's where these potential errors or or at least problems in understanding come about. I like the way that you you put that. This continual measurement introduces these little errors potentially each time. I think that was very helpful. So I wanted to read, you know, we we started this series on the Cradless talking about the main debate, which was whether names have a, an, an origin in universal nature or whether they're just based on human convention. Cradless is trying to straddle the fence and say that they're both, you know, a name is whatever a person says it is. Uh, and yet he also says that there's a basis in nature to a, like an absolute basis of a name. Uh, so he kind of wants it both ways. And I thought I would just read this part at 435 BDE, which deals with that, with that debate. And so here Socrates says, and even if usage is completely different from convention, still you must say that expressing something isn't a matter of likeness, but of usage, since usage, it seems, enables both like and unlike names to express things. Since we agree on these points, Cradless, for I take your silence as a sign of agreement, both convention and usage must contribute something to expressing what we mean when we speak. Consider numbers, Cradless, since he wanted to have recourse to them. Where do you think you'll get the names that are like each one of the numbers if you don't allow this agreement and convention of yours to have some control over the correctness of names? 
I myself prefer the view that names should be as much like things as possible, but I fear that defending this view is like hauling a ship up a sticky ramp, as Hermogenes suggested, and that we have to make use of this worthless thing, convention, in the correctness of names. For probably the best possible way to speak consists in using names all or most of which are like the things they name, that is, are appropriate to them, while the worst is to use the opposite kind of names. But let me ask you this, what power do names have for us? What's the good of them? And that really, I think, is the whole point of this dialogue. You know, names seem to have quite a lot of power to us. We act on the words that we use and our understanding of the words. And I think we talked about that last time in the sense of democracy. The differences in the way we interpret the meaning of democracy have a very real and now a very divisive consequence on our relations with one another, both within countries, within a particular country, or between countries. You know, this this word has a very important difference, and it, it's causing uh, different outcomes and, and sometimes very contentious uh, relations between people. I thought it interesting here, again, this refer reference to hauling a ship up a sticky ramp, which I think Darren pointed out in the last episode, it was used earlier in the dialogue. And it's like, you know, if, if the perfection of a name is on that ship, you're trying to haul it up this ramp, and this ramp is paved with with this gluey kind of convention that has been applied to the name over time. Uh, these different different letters have been added to the name, different meanings have been appended to it. You know, it's, it's all these adornments and distortions over time. So this this ramp, we're trying to get this this ship of the truth of the name up. And it's something that's very difficult because of all of this history that's been attached to the name. So um, this, this record, this historical record of the name is very important to understand. And so Socrates here is concluding that uh, he says, well, yes, I, I think names should be based on their what they're representing in nature, but we have to make recourse, we have to refer to convention, we have to understand how they have been used historically in order to understand what people mean by the name. And ultimately, what we're trying to do is instruct each other. And in fact, Socrates says the word instruct to Cratylus at the end, you'll have to instruct me later. And so we're trying to exchange these complex ideas. And the only way we're going to understand each other in exchanging these complex ideas is to understand both the nature or the being of the name and the convention that's been applied to the name over time. So that's the conclusion, really, I think, of this dialogue is that both are necessary, but one is one is correct and the other is not correct, but we have to use both to understand. So I wanted to to raise that just so that we didn't leave that hanging where we where we started with you know I, it's been such a great uh discussion i i really do want to come back to the crowdless at some point there's been so many uh so many points that we've raised here that are so relevant i think to other dialogues both ones that we've done before and ones that we'll do in the future that uh, i don't think will i don't think we have left the crowdless at this point uh, at all so Unfortunately, we are out of time. Uh, it's been such a great discussion, and I'm looking forward to listening to the recording of this, which I'll get posted in about a week. I'll end the recording momentarily, but invite anybody who wants to stay online um, for an unrecorded half-hour discussion in what I call Plato's Cafe. We can discuss what we've just gone through, or Plato in general, or just philosophy in general, and see what we uh, want to pursue in that. I wanted also to 
say that I think next we'll do the next dialogue that we'll do in two weeks is Plato's Greater Hippias. There's two dialogues of the Hippias and the Greater Hippias is, is one of them. So I think we'll do that dialogue. It's a shorter dialogue uh, that I think we'll do in one session. So we'll we'll do that next time. Look forward, hopefully, to seeing everybody in two weeks for that discussion. So thank you very much, and uh, look forward to talking to people who want to stay online for Plato's Cafe. Thank you. Thank you.